and here I am. At five o'clock in the morning, with a couple of New York finest cops, they're carrying guns and we're doing blowout in the open and no one's fucking touching us, you know? <laughs> so I find a razor blade and I slit my shoulder and I take that line of coke and I rub it into the wound, helping wow. to get a rush. Wow. And I didn't give a flying fuck. Mm. There was no shame in that. There was no guilt in that. I had the shift where I finally saw how short this thing called life is. That one minute we're here and the next minute we're not. Hello and welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray. And today, wow, we just had a big conversation with Dr. Howard Samuels confronting the beast within. Howard actually grew up in a very affluent family as his father was a very prominent political figure. He had a learning disability, a stutter, and he was actually labeled and identified as being stupid. He began using drugs and alcohol regularly at the age of 14, and by 16, he was actually addicted to heroin, and by 19, he was arrested for possession of cocaine and heroin. Went to rehab twice. During his second treatment, his father died suddenly of a heart attack, and it created a psychic shift that completely changed the game. For those of you out there who've been touched by addiction, whether it be in your own lives or through those that you know, there are very few people who have been left immune to this situation where they haven't at least experienced it on some level. This is gonna be a very enlightening conversation. Check this one out. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com oh but ladies and gentlemen it is my absolute honor and a real pleasure to welcome to the show, Howard's, Dr. Howard Samuels. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. No, it's a real honor. Um, now, for those people who perhaps don't know who you are, why don't you give us the 15 to 30 second um, historical view of who Dr. Howard Samuels is? And well, you know, uh, first of all, it's it's not so much my education and my letters. You know, I, I think that's just to give the uh, people sort of give me some credibility, right, with the parents. Yeah, right. You know, I think uh, the real experience is that uh, I used to shoot heroin, okay, uh, speedballs, uh, and came from a pretty wealthy family, uh, grew up with everything I ever needed, right, uh, and then at 16 started putting a needle in my arm, okay, out of the blue. Wow, just out, out of, of the, the blue. blue. I mean... It was so interesting. I mean, I was living in Washington, D.C. because my father was uh, in uh, President Johnson's cabinet, okay? And uh, I'm 16, and I'm driving around D.C. with a friend from school, and he's dropping off little packages to people's homes. And uh, we go back to my place, and he pulls out a syringe, pulls out a spoon, uh, pulls out heroin and cocaine. Now, hear me. I've never done heroin, never done cocaine at this point. You know, I've done some speed and smoked some weed, right? And he took, put it, you know, did a speedball, 
put it in the spoon, shot it up, and turned to me, do you want to get off? And I said, absolutely. I mean, there wasn't one doubt in my mind. And I went right to shooting speedballs. And the minute I shot that speedball, it took all that fear, all that insecurity, mm. all that lack of confidence that I carried with me my whole life, it took it away. I felt connected for the first time in my life. Wow. And, uh, and I was off and running. Mm. I can absolutely relate. As I <laughs> mentioned to you earlier, like right. I had a, in my uh, 1920s, I was addicted to amphetamines and I, w I was an intravenous drug user, I still yeah. remember. Yeah. It was my trainer. Yeah. 34-year-old <laughs> uh, man. Right. Trainer, right. Was, you know, he was he was he was looking after me, training me as a as a competitive athlete. Right. And then one day we're at his house, and uh, same thing. Pulled out a spoon. Yeah. Pulled out a bag. Yeah. He was like, "You want to try this?" And I was like, "Sure." <laughs> well, I, I mean, he pressed the, the button. Yeah. Everything was good. Yeah. Insecurity's gone. Yeah. Fear's gone. Doubt's yeah. gone. All of a sudden, yeah. I was like, "Wow, this is what it's like to feel normal." Exactly. Yeah. You know, because I never felt normal. Me neither. Yeah, I get it. You know, always felt detached alone, and I grew up in a huge family, and yet I felt alone mm. my whole life. So there was wealth, there was money. Mm -hmm. What was missing, do you think, that kind of drove you towards the drugs? Well, I, I, I think it's twofold. One, my mother was an alcoholic. Okay. Okay. And, you know, so I got the card. Yeah. Now, I didn't get the, so much the alcoholic card. When you say the card, like, what, what, what do you mean? I got the card of being a drug addict. Okay, is that by virtue of your belief around genetics? Yes, or, okay. absolutely. Or environment, okay. or both? Genetics. Okay. You know, I really truly believe it starts with genetics. You know, that I would say out of the thousands of people that I've treated, 90% have had a family member who was an alcoholic or a drug addict, 90%, mm. okay? Very rarely is there no history in the family tree. Yeah, right. And now, so I really believe that's where it starts, okay? Now, I had eight brothers and sisters. Uh, I was the most dysfunctional. Uh, I have a sister who smoked weed every day for 40 years. 40 years. She had a huge career, huge life, uh, big producer with 60 Minutes, prime time, all the huge shows. Uh, now she lives alone. She's 70 years old. No family, no nothing, no career. And it's because she, the weed totally isolated her in her life after mm. 40 years. After four years? 40. 40 years? 40. Wow. 40 years of smoking oh. weed every day. She slowly disengaged from life and became more and more isolated. Her husband left her, no kids, no nothing. That's, that's the, the, hidden, mm. the hidden problem with weed. And this is the thing, people often talk about um, how weed is a safe drug, it's a right. non-addictive drug. Right. Uh, and what I didn't tell you, which I was about to tell you, uh, the sec my second drug that I became addicted to was actually cannabis. Yeah, I w and I was addicted to it also. And what's interesting, I was actually saying this to an addict yesterday who I was having a conversation with down um, by the pier, um, I actually found it more difficult to get off cannabis than I did to get off actual speed. Wow. Yeah. And I know wow. that's different for everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I found once I got recovered from speed, I could get my distance. Yeah. I was fine. Yeah. But I found cannabis because of its, uh, I guess it's social nature. Yeah. It's social acceptance in some respects, <laughs> even it's, well, it's not addictive. Don't be silly. It's fine. Kind right. of psychology. Right. Yeah. It's easy to creep back right. in. Well, it's the undercover, uh, drug. 
Mm. Okay. Uh, you know, like, because my sister flew under the radar. Yeah. I was, my addiction was full blown. Everyone could see. I mean, mine was insanity. Okay. She flew under the radar, but now she's so dysfunctional in life. That's incredible. Yeah. So Very 16, sad. hit your first speedball? Hit my first speedball at 16. Um, you know, living in D.C., a uh, lot of heroin in D.C., uh, moved to New York City, uh, was arrested the first time at 17. Uh, my father was running Possession? for governor of New York at 17, Ooh. right? So um, I had my 15 minutes of fame. Uh, I was in Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, front page of all the papers, because back then, rich white boys weren't drug addicts. Yeah. You know, it was a more of a lower income issue, right? And not a white upper class issue. And so, you know, because my father was very high profile, you know, um, you know, I was all over the papers. Uh, I got away with youthful offender at 17. And, but my addiction progressed. And at 19, I decided, you know, I was starting to get strung out on heroin again at 19. And I decided that I didn't want to stay in New York where the drugs weren't all that great. So my dream in life <laughs> was to go to Afghanistan wow. and be an international drug dealer. Wow. Okay, so. Just big. I, I had the connection in Kabul, right, to get the drugs out. And I devised this whole plan that uh, I bought an ounce of cocaine and uh, I was gonna go to Boulder, Colorado, where my sister lived, sell the ounce in grams and half grams, buy 100 pounds of pot, take a train back to New York City, sell the 100 pounds of pot, and then fly off to Afghanistan and live happily ever after. <laughs> With the best heroin. I mean, brother, that was the fucking dream of my life, right? And um, now the problem was, I got to Kennedy Airport, and I'm strung out on dope, and I had, you know, the, the ounce of coke on me, and the feds back then, they didn't have metal detectors. They had sky marshals, feds that would have a certain profile and pull people out of line. Right. Okay. I got pulled out of line. Now, you know, I had hair down to my shoulders, right? You know, and but I'm wearing a sports coat, jeans. Pull me on a line. Uh, they search me. They find the drugs. They drag me to a small room, handcuff me to a chair, and start to interrogate me, right? They go through my wallet. They found a map of Afghanistan. Oh, no. Right? Oh. And, you know, and then they found, you know, the heroin that I had for my own habit. And I also had some shitty drugs that I would give to people because, you know, I'm not going to share my good shit. I mean, come <laughs> on. You know, I'm a drug addict, right? But I want to act like I'm generous. So yeah. I always give the shitty stuff to people. And, um, you know, and so, you know, they, you know, they, you know, I, I had a big old attitude. Uh, they walked me out of the airport handcuffed. Um, and meanwhile, they take me to jail. Now, once again, my father was high profile. So when I left the precinct, there were uh, probably about 50 photographers and newspeople, mm. right? Um, I was on the front page of the New York Daily News, handcuffed, being led into a paddy wagon, right? Which 
I, I have that picture, which is great. You know, I actually wrote a book, uh, and I had that picture in the book. Wow. You know, because, I mean, come on. You should have them in frames in your office. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Before and after. Oh, exactly. You know? Um, So I fought the case. Uh, I lost. And I lost because they said that I had the profile of a potential hijacker. Now, if you're going to go, you might as well go big. Yeah. Right? Wow. And uh, so the judge uh, gave me a choice of four years in prison uh, because, you know, they they busted me on a felony for dealing um, or a year in rehab. So a year in rehab. A year in rehab. Wow. So I went to rehab, obviously. Okay. And what was so interesting about my first rehab is when I walked into the door of the rehab, you know, I spent my my life living with attitude and anger. And because I didn't really know how to deal with feelings in a healthy way. I mean, my parents never taught me how to feel and how to you know, manage my feelings and how to process it, because I didn't know, okay? And so I didn't know how to sit, I didn't know how to act, I didn't know how to talk without attitude. So I had to sort of totally be re-educated on how to learn how to express anger in a healthy way, how to express you hurt my feelings. I mean, a totally new world, Mm. okay, about trying to learn how to deal with human emotions. Because no one ever taught me how to deal with human emotions. And think about that. It's so weird that parents aren't taught how to teach their kids how to process emotions in a healthy way. Mm. I mean, it's sort of alien. There's no classes on that. You know, I mean, that's as important as learning how to walk. But do you think that starts at a basis where it's not so much taught as it is observed? Well, the parents have to be aware that the feelings that a child has, they shouldn't be shamed for it. Mm. And see, that's not the case. When a child has too many feelings, they're shamed for it. Mm. They shut the child down. So they stuff those feelings. And I learned how to stuff those feelings. That's why when I shot dope, it was peace. Because I had so many underlining feelings that were never, ever expressed. Because I had stuffed them my whole life. I mean, my mother never cooked me a meal. She never clothed me. Um, She never hugged me. You know, she slept every day until 1 o'clock. I was raised by a succession of housekeepers, right? Now, I had no connection at all. My father was a workaholic, and he would come home, and the minute I heard him come in the door, I would have fear, because my father was all about productivity. What have you done to be productive today? So if I'm laying around on the fucking couch watching TV, right, it's like, you know, I'm not being productive. So. I grew up in this household that was very cold. Mm. But I thought that was normal. Mm. I didn't know. So I had all this anger. I mean, I was an angry, angry guy. And that's why, I mean, I used to get in lots of fights. You know, I had a learning disability, um, dyslexia growing up. 
Uh, I didn't know I had a learning disability back then. You also had a stutter as well, is that right? No, well, actually, I had a little bit of a stutter in fourth grade. But the key was that I grew up thinking I was stupid. Mm. My father went to MIT. My brother went to MIT Harvard Law. My whole family is a family of high achievers, okay? And here I come along, and I can't really write that well. I can't really, you know, uh, read that well. Um, And no one really knew that I had a learning disability. So I had this belief system that I was stupid. Now, were you labeled that way by parents? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, well, I was labeled that way as far as being, you know, horrible in school and, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, they they definitely treated me with that I was a little out there, okay? Um, And because, you know, I just rebelled. Mm. And it was so interesting that I carried this negative belief system with me my whole life, okay? And that, to me, is where a lot of us, especially addicts and alcoholics, we have such a negative belief system about self that that's our recovery. We have to know what that negative belief system, because all of us are different. Mm. You know, We all come from backgrounds that are different or life experiences that are different. So the beast is what I call it. The beast comes in and creates a negative belief system for yourself that you hold on to where you don't, you, you never feel connected. You feel like a loser. You feel like you're not good enough because of this negative belief system. And what I learned is that it's a fucking lie. That's the beast that keeps us in our addiction, keeps us in our low self-esteem, keeps us, you know, living this lie where we don't really realize, you know, the, 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 the beauty of who we are, okay? And we can't grab onto it because we're so stuck in our negative thinking. And that's our work mm. right there. It's my work all the time. Now, what was interesting is even after I got sober, you know, I spent like from, you know, because I went to two treatment centers, so you came out of your first year-long treatment? Yeah, I came out of my first treatment at 20. Wow. Got out Yeah. and went to NYU in New York City, uh, film school, right? Because I like going to movies, so let me, let me go to film school. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I want to do, right? And um, now what that, that first treatment center didn't teach me that I was also an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. Yeah, okay. When I want to get loaded, I don't go to a bar. I go cop. (laughs) I go get drugs, okay? The only time I go to a bar is if I'm doing too much blow and I don't have any pills or heroin to calm down. Then I got, give me a drink, okay? So I drank, right? Now, I never really got drunk, but I had a bridge, okay? The alcohol was like a little bit of a bridge. And, you know, I'd drink watching the game or, you know, things like that. Were you binge drinking or were you just no, no, moderately, no, moderately. M- medicating? And, yeah, moderately. Yeah, I mean, like once sedating. in a while, go out to a bar, have a beer, a couple of beers. But what that did is 
I would say after a couple of years of leaving that treatment center, I thought I was well. Mm. I thought that I didn't really have an addiction problem anymore, okay? And so I would do a little blow on the weekends because blow was really not my drug of choice. Heroin was. And everybody in the 70s was doing blow, okay? I mean, I was, I, I was getting high with cops. I was getting high with DAs, you know, in New York City. Uh, I was running nightclubs. Um, and I would do a little blow on the weekend, and then I'd do a little bit more blow on the weekend, and then I had to take Valium, then I had to take some pills to calm down because I hate tweaking, right? And then all of a sudden, one day, somebody ended up with some opium, you know. Now, I got to tell you, eating opium and doing blow, beautiful combination, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, and then that, you know, that opened up the door where I rationalized the opium, I rationalized pills, and then all of a sudden somebody showed up with a little, little heroin, a little dope. And as long as I don't shoot it, I'm cool. Mm. Right? So I'd snort a little heroin, you know, come down off the blow, and all of a sudden one day I'm shooting heroin. Now, during that whole time, now I'm doing tons of blow, okay? I'm working nightclubs. My friends are working Studio 54. We're going to studio. You know, I'm getting high with a lot of New York cops because they do off-duty jobs at nightclubs. You know, and here I am, you know, in after-hours clubs at 5 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, sitting in an after-hours club with a couple of New York finest cops. They're carrying guns, and we're doing blowout in the open, and no one's fucking touching us. You know, now, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, it is, it is, you know, it is so great to get high with the New York police. <laughs> and, you know, and we, I'd get out of there at two o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. Right. Go home, drink, go to bed, get up, go back to the club, do the whole thing all over again. Now, that lifestyle, you know, brought me back to heroin. Mm. Okay. And, you know, now... How long did it take for that to come back in? I would say from the, the first treatment center, four to five years. Okay. You know, and see, this is what makes the disease so insidious. Is, in my case, it wasn't like, oh, I had a drink and I'm shooting heroin. No. It took five, four to five years for a slow rationalization from the beer to the dope. A little rationalization every few months, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little different, until I'm shooting dope, I'm like robbing my sister's apartment, I'm like, I would go up to see my mother, knock on the door, my own mother was afraid to see me, there would be fear in my mother's eyes, because she knew I was there to rip her off. Mm. I would steal her money, I would steal her med drugs from her medicine cabinet, you know, like I said, I would stage robberies with my sister's apartment, my own. I staged a robbery at my girlfriend's apartment, you know, and she called me sobbing that she had been robbed and broken into. And I said, don't worry, sweetie, we'll get the motherfucker. Meanwhile, I got her $500 in my pocket. I'm going downtown to cop. Wow. You know, and I didn't give a flying fuck. Mm. See, that's, that's what's so crazy. There was no shame in that. There was no guilt in that. Because all I really cared about was fixing that, that pain in my gut 
that emptiness in the pit of my gut. That's all I cared about. And as long as I fixed that emptiness and pain in the pit of my gut, I didn't give a fuck about anybody or anything. I mean, I would go to these parties. I remember I went to one party, you know, a Park Avenue party. My sisters are there, friends are there. I go in the coat room, and I'm stealing everybody's cash out of the purse, right? Now, this is funny. So I steal my sister's money, but I leave her $10 so she can get a cab home. And I'm thinking I'm a nice fucking guy. <laughs> I'm such a sweetheart. You're a good guy. <laughs> you know, so, you know, that, that was the insanity. Now, I, I, I got to say, during all this insanity, you know, of Odin, my sister running down the streets of the West Village uh, as I'm being put in an ambulance and she's crying, um, you know, there were so many episodes of insanity that I did. And probably one of the more extreme episodes was, you know, I finally had lost everything. I'm living at my mother with my mother. And uh, it's like 6 o'clock in the morning. I got one line of blow left. I don't have any more Valium to take or any heroin. And I don't have a syringe because I want to shoot the Coke. So I find a razor blade. And I take the razor blade and I slit my shoulder with the razor blade. And I take that line of coke and I rub it into the wound, helping wow. to get a rush. Wow. Woohoo. I mean, fucking crazy. Wow. But see, that's where I go. Yeah. You see, that, and, and I have to say that because I'm 35 years clean and sober. But see, that's still inside me. Mm. Okay. My addict is still inside me. And that's where I go when I relapse. Mm. And I have to always remember that because, you know, unfortunately addiction will tell you you're not really an addict. Just like the first time I thought I was well. I'm not well, mm. okay? The sickness is still inside me. And that's why it's so important to stay connected with your recovery and who, who is buried, the beast that is still buried within. Because the beast is still there. Mm. The potential is still there. And if I don't stay on top of it, I'm history. You still feel after 35 years, it's still just below the surface. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not like I'm gonna go out today and, you know, do something bad, but, but I'll tell you, I mean, here I am, you know, a therapist, and I'll have these Beverly Hills housewives come in because they drank a little too much wine, right? And they're coming in with their Prada purse, right? And, and they go to the bathroom, and I'm thinking, how much cash is in the purse? <laughs> it's still there. Yeah. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah, right. Because, you know, I'm built that way. Yeah. You know? Now, I'm not going to go into the purse and, yeah. and, and check it out, but I'm built that way. Yeah. Okay? And that, to me, is natural because it's still here. Then I laugh at myself because I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> That's beautiful. So five years later, you relapse. All goes to shit. All goes to shit. Um, uh, my family started doing interventions on me. Right. Okay. Um, you say interventions, plural. They had to do multiple interventions. Yeah, multiple family you know, interventions. And, you know, I'm a good dope fan. 
you know, I'm manipulative, I talk a good game. You're a good addict. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like all we all. Yeah. I mean, that's our gift. Our, our gift is right. I mean, that's I mean, look at what yeah. you're doing. Look what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, that's our gift. Okay. I mean, we're very blessed people. Mm. Okay. And um, and so uh they did multiple interventions on me. And and I gotta say, probably, you know, the last one um was I was sitting at a dinner. And uh, I, you know, finally said that I would go to treatment. And my father started crying because my father felt so responsible for my addiction, like he had done something wrong, okay? Uh, and then my sisters started crying, you know. Uh, and then I, 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 I said, listen, guys, I won't come back and act. I'll come back a drag queen instead, you know, trying to break the goddamn ice, you know. Um, so I went to treatment. And now, How long was this treatment this time? They sent me to Phoenix House. Now, let me tell you, Phoenix House is the largest treatment center in the country. Is that, I'm going to assume, Arizona? Uh, no. no. Uh, it's, it's a behavioral modification. Wow. Not 12-step. Wow. Okay. Uh, I slept in a room with 25 guys. Uh, the Aryan Brotherhood, uh, which is a racist group from prison, Right, along with the brothers from Detroit, um, 25 bunk beds, you know, one single room, single locker, open showers, war signs, uh, yelled at, screamed at, total behavioral modification. And now, 18 month program. <sighs> now, I walk into this thing and they ship me from New York out to out here to Santa Ana, which is a very low income community just south of LA. And, you know, and this place is surrounded, it's like three acres surrounded by fences and barbed wire. Wow. Okay. Um, and so I said, like, it sounds more like a jail than a treatment center. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, most of the people in there were from prison. <clears throat> yeah. You know, and uh, very hardcore. And I said, I'm not staying 18 months. I mean, I'm staying two months, and I told the family this, I told these people that. I'm staying two months, I need a refresher course. I've been here, done this shit, okay? And, uh, you know, and you know, to tell you how, hard, how hardcore, I mean, I walk in, you know, just like prison, I had a strip, I had to bend over, they licked up my butt, you know, whole nine yards, okay? And, you know, so when it got close to two months, one night they woke me up in the middle of the night and told me my father had died of a heart attack. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, realize that my father was the foundation of my life. He was this huge figure in my life. In fact, all of our kids, you know, all my brothers and sisters, you know, he was the rock. He was, you know, the, the, the man, okay? You know, very successful. So uh, despite the fear you had around his expectations, you still adored him. You exactly. put him up on a massive pedestal. Exactly, exactly. And the, and the social world validated that with his position in society. Yes, absolutely. Mm. I mean, you know, huge politician, <clears throat> president's cabinets, you know, everyone knew him, the whole nine yards. And, um, and so I went to the program director and I said, look, I got to go back to New York by myself. Please don't send a watchdog with me, okay? I need to do this. Now, that program director took a risk 
because everyone thought I wasn't going to come back because mm. I had told everybody two months and I'm out of here, right? And, uh, and he, he said, okay. I went back to New York and, uh, you know, worked with my brother, found the graveside, did the whole nine yards. And when I buried my father, I made a commitment that he would never have to worry about me again. That's when I had the shift. Did, and that's what I'm going to ask. Did something click? Yes. You felt something move? Yes. I had the shift where I finally saw how short this thing called life is. Mm. That one minute we're here and the next minute we're not. Because mm. my father died suddenly of a heart attack. And that was the whole key, the psychic shift, the moment of so much pain. Because the only thing that creates pain, change for us addicts, alcoholics, is intense emotional pain. Mm. That is the bottom. And you don't know when it's gonna come. Right? Well, for, my, for me, it came in that moment with my father dying, along with all those other horrible incidences that I had gone through and that I had done to myself. But it took that, that pain, for me to have the shift. Mm. And, um, and I went back to Phoenix House, went back to Santa Ana, uh, and I did everything they asked me to do. Did you save the 18-month program? I stayed 18 months. Wow. Now, I stayed a year in Santa Ana, but it got, but for me, I'm the kind of dope thing, alcoholic, who thinks he's well. Because I present, I'm, I'm, I'm good with bullshit, okay? But I convince myself. See, that's the problem, you know, is that my arrogance and entitlement. We're so good at bullshitting the yeah. world that the first person we bullshit is ourselves. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. okay? And because I start to believe it. Mm. <laughs> So I knew that when I went back to treatment, I knew that I had to be around treatment mm. to really save me. Mm. So it wasn't like at that point I had this big you know, need to help people. I had a need for survival, personal survival. You were literally looking at setting your life up to create a level of accountability yes. to keep you well. Exactly. So. Okay. Um, so I worked for Phoenix House. They right. sent me back to New York City. I lived in one of their halfway houses. Um, and I worked as a counselor for another two years. So I was with Phoenix House uh, as a client and as a staff member for four or five years. Wow. Okay. To really enforce this new way of life for me. Now, for me, though, um, at that particular point, I mean, I was making like sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars as a counselor because it's a nonprofit, right? And so, you know, I left. And then for the next number of years, I tried to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up because that was the big deal. You know, uh, I went on the road as a tour manager with rock and roll bands. Um, that must have been challenging. Yeah, I did that for a couple of years, you know. Like, this is post-Phoenix House. Post-Phoenix House. And, and, and the, the ma uh, music managers loved me because I was sober. Right. And so, you know, I was like the bodyguard, sober bodyguard, right? They would keep the band in line. 
So I'm traveling the country, traveling England, you know, Mexico, and it's a yeah. dangerous position to put yourself in at that oh, stage. Yeah, yeah. It was fun. <laughs> was that conscious? Like I'm going to just see how strong I am, or was no, it more a drive no, out of it, I just know, enjoy it was, this work? It's so interesting. I was never tempted. Right. You know, and I think that I was never tempted because I had made the, the shift. shift. Okay. Have you seen that as a pattern, a common pattern with addicts? In order to get that that real run into recovery, there's some there's some kind of a there's got to be a shift. Yeah, that is normally born out of a rock bottom pain. Yes, some. yes. There's got to be a psychic shift. Mm. Okay, and the people who don't have the psychic shift, unfortunately, are dead. And if they're not dead, they're insane. I mean, I I have so many clients of mine that are dead. You know, especially the last three year, three years with fentanyl. Wow. I mean, I've never seen so many dead people in the 30 years I've been doing this. You know? Living dead. Yeah, all because of fentanyl. I mean, it has, it, it, it's, it's like the AIDS epidemic for the gay community. Wow. You know? It's that powerful as a drug, that addictive as yeah. a drug? Yeah, that powerful will kill you right away. And so for, for me, you know, at this particular point, I did a lot of different things. You know, like I got, I, I, I left the treatment center at like 35, 36. You know, did a lot of things up until 40. Still, you know, worked in, with music, worked with film, you know, did a number of things. And then I, I had an, another awakening, you know, and, and this is what's so interesting. I went into my secondary addiction, which was love and sex addiction. Right. <laughs> This is great. Okay. And, you know, because the truth of the matter is, you know, when, you know, you're, you're a drug addict, there's no sex. Okay. I mean, all I wanted was drugs. You know, maybe a little sex here and there. Now I'm sober. It's like, I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> Give me sex. Yeah, come on, world. It's I got over to make brother. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um... You know, so, you know, I was going out with a lot of girls, but underneath that, I was really a love addict, mm. okay? And so, you know, I finally met this girl, and I was like... For people listening to this who perhaps are hearing that term, you know, for the first, second, or third time, and who still haven't got a basis, when you say love addict, what do you mean? I need... What I mean is this. I have, and always have had, a very serious intimacy issue, which means that because I grew up with a very unavailable mother. So you never really bonded with your paternal parents? Yes. Yeah. My mother was very aloof, yeah. very emotionally unavailable. So here I am out in the world, and what do I get attracted to? Unavailable women, very aloof women, because that's what I think love is, because mm. that was my mother. Mm. Do you see the connection? Absolutely. Okay. And so I would chase the unavailable. You know, this is me. Right? Or if they were available, they'd be here, I'd have sex with them, and then I'd run. Yeah. <laughs> Can't relate at all. Right. So here I am, it's like this. Pac-Man. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, so I got involved with an unavailable woman, seven years, right? And I'm sober. She was also in uh, AA, okay? And uh and what ended up happening was the sex was unbelievable. 
I fell in love with her. I wanted to live with her. And, uh, and know this, she was a cutter. She cut herself. Wow. She was bulimic. She had uh, been sexually molested by family members, right? And when we would have sex, she would sleep for two days because it was so traumatic. Wow. And I wanted to marry this girl because I am such a codependent caretaker. And one day, she started to distance herself from me. She started to become even more unavailable. And what happened with me? I became even more in love. I became even more obsessed. Right? Even more addicted. Yes. And then she dumped me, and I was devastated. Devastated. I mean, I, I, I remember we were in an AA meeting, and, and, and I'm in the corner, and the speaker calls on me, and, and I start crying. And she's in the room, and she gets up and walks out, right? And I got to say, I was a wreck for six months. Six months where people would have to walk me to the car, I would cry at home, I'd have to pull over on the road and sob. Total detox. This was a four-month relationship. Wow. Woohoo! Not seven years, four months. That's four-month relationship. <clears throat> now, this, the pain really was not about the girl. The pain was the original abandonment. Mm-hmm that I had gone through as a kid, that was all coming up. Is this work that you hadn't done yet? Yes. Right. At seven years, okay? Because see- Seven you, years sober. Seven years sober. Gotcha. Now- it, And do you think it took that long for it to come yes, to the surface? Because know something, you can't do the work unless it comes up. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you so just true. can't do the work yeah. intellectually. Yeah. Right? You have to do the work emotionally. So you can't do the work. And that's the important of the sobriety to allow it to come up so you can bring it to the surface and work on it. And to bring all that pain because it had to be triggered. It had to, there had to be a trigger to it, Mm. which was her. I think this is a really important point to just pause on because I think some people think when they get sober that life just gets easier and and, and life doesn't get easier. Right. In in many respects, it gets harder. Right, exactly. And it gets harder, not necessarily in perpetuity, but because we've been suppressing, we've been stuffing these emotions. Yes. And I think this is something, do you think this is something that we need to psychologically, addicts should be psychologically preparing for as a part of their treatment, that this is going to be coming up? Well, it is going to be difficult? Absolutely. And, and I got to say, getting sober is the first step, mm. okay? But now that we're sober with no barrier and buffer, because you have to understand, We've spent years abusing ourselves. We even had childhoods that were very unhealthy. Now, it's not just going to come up once we get the drugs away that week. Some are going to come up. That's why going to treatment is a good thing in the first, you know, 90 days. Okay? But see, life is going to bring it up. Mm. And you have to be prepared for that. You have to be prepared for the, the, the pain of unresolved issues starting to come up like having sex. I mean, most of us addicts, we all had sex, but we were loaded. So we didn't really feel. We didn't feel at all. Mm. And you know, it's so interesting in that after sex, there's usually no intimacy for an addict. Mm. They get up and put their clothes on. 
They don't really sit with the person they just made love with and hold them or, you know, talk and be intimate. That's because it's hard for us. Mm. But that's something we have to be aware of because we want that intimacy, yet we're scared of that intimacy. And, and for men and women who come from such damaged backgrounds and have created such damage to ourselves, we have to be prepared that these issues are going to come up mm. and not be afraid of it, but to embrace it. And that's ultimately how we stay sober. Yes. Well, because think about it. If I didn't do the work in seven years with this relationship, mm. and if I was in denial and I kept the behavior going, I would get loaded eventually. You see, at seven years, that was my second, I think, psychic shift. Because what that relationship did was I was medicating myself by going from woman to woman and always looking, is she the one? Is she the one? Is she the woman? Right? Because I was getting my self-esteem fed by that. And it's not real self-esteem. It's just little validation for the ego. Okay? Meanwhile, I'm lost in my life over here, and I'm trying to make my life her. That's why I hit the bottom. I wanted to save that girl because I didn't have to deal with my own stuff. Mm. Well, once I realized this and I started to do the work, you know, on my abandonment issues, I started to try to work on spirituality because women were my spirituality. I turned my life and will over to the care of her. What am I doing? She ain't going to save me. The only person going to save me is me. And... And at that particular point, I realized that I had to find a passion to live my life through, okay? Because I had no passion. Mm. Because it's so hard for me to make a commitment to some, either a woman or a career or something. And I realized that the only time I was ever really happy and connected, sober, was when I was working for the treatment center in New York City. And I'm sitting on a stoop, I think on 74th Street, and I'm working with a 16-year-old kid who wanted to leave the program and go shoot dope. And I was able to talk him down, but I was able to open him up where he started to cry about what was really going on. Mm. And because he got it out and he cried about it, he didn't go shoot dope that day. Hmm. That's when I realized that that was, that was truly God in a lot of ways. That I got to experience and do something really honorable and do something that was important that day. Mm. It's not about the money. It's not about all that bullshit, okay? It's about really doing something that you're passionate and honorable and spiritual. And because I felt so connected that day, I decided to go do this work. Mm. I decided that I would go back to school, and I got my master's, I got my doctorate, but you have to understand, then I had to go through the next issue. Remember, I thought I was stupid. stupid. I had this negative belief system that I couldn't really do get a master's or a doctorate. How old were you at this stage? 40 years old. Wow. 
I was 40 years old. So I went back to school. I got my master's. I got my doctorate. I got my license. Now, that took me seven fucking years. Wow. Seven years to do all of that. Were you counseling in parallel at this time? Yes. Yeah. You know, I was running treatment centers at this time. I was building treatment centers at this time. Is this when you're working with Promises? Yes. Yeah. You know, um, I started at Promises. I worked my way up at Promises. Uh, I started running Promises. I built the Malibu program at Promises, all while I was getting my master's, my license, and everything else. Mm. Okay. But you know where it all started? That relationship. <laughs> and see, this is what makes life Crazy, crazy, because I got into that dysfunctional, sick relationship, and I was able to look at my part, right? And I was able to sort of do the work that I had to do, led me to this incredible path. That's what recovery is all about. Wow. That's inspirational, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You, you made a mention before. You, you said I, you know, I went to work on my abandonment issues, and you know, I hear this all the time. I know I'm, I personally, you know, I'm dealing with my own abandonment issues, um, and it's something abandonment issues, intimacy issues, you know, everything you've listed. We could, we could go into detail, but I am curious to know if, for the people who are listening, and I'm also asking this for myself as well. When you start working on abandonment issues, where's the? Is, is there a pathway? Is there a model? Um, is there a, a first step? when it comes to re, just learning how to be intimate, learning how to surrender to those abandonment issues? Um, once again, you can't do it in a vacuum. Mm. Can't do it intellectually, mm. okay? You gotta go to work. Now, what does the work look like? Because I, I deal with clients with, like this all the time. First of all, you gotta date. But you gotta date people who are available, mm. okay? You can't, Chase. If you're chasing, you're wasting time. And now you have to be educated to having somebody who is available. Now, the problem with the addict alcoholic is we want, we, oh, but I'm really attracted to her, but she's not returning my call. <laughs> Keep calling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, you know, and then what we're really in love with is the chase. The feeling, it's that, it's that, that, yes, the, the dopamine. Endorphins. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's the abandonment. So, first of all, uh, we have to work on not doing that. So, clients will come in. So, there's a level of self awareness that's required to see that yes, behavior plan. Right. Out. And see, that's what I do with my clients. I'll point it out to them, and we go specifically through the phone call, through the energy with the woman, through your own energy. Are you chasing? Da 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 da. Because the most important thing is, you can't waste time. Mm. If you're wasting time, then you're in denial to what's going on. But I'm sure you would hear the denial and the addict, um, the addict, uh, the addict voice rationalizing. Oh, but you don't understand. She's different. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you don't understand. I know this is the one. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the first step is not to chase. Yeah. The next step is even harder, because now when you find somebody available. You're not really attracted to them, okay? And you gotta get used to it. Wow. You have to be able to handle somebody who is available. 
okay? Mm. Because it's, it's, it's not what we're used to. So in the beginning, is this it's, remodeling the blueprint? Yes, like you got you, you got It's a re-education. Yeah, you know, it's a remodeling, as you said, and the attraction blueprint. Yes. Yeah. Now, look, if uh, if a girl's available, the intimacy blueprint as well. Yes. yes. But sometimes girls are too available. Yeah. Or guys are too available. Yeah. They're too needy, right? Now I'm not saying we're going to handle that because none of us are going to be able to handle that, right? But there are people out there who are available um, that are healthy, okay? And so that's what I'll process with my client, you know? Um, Do you sometimes find the addicts going, but why would someone normal and healthy, why are they going to want someone who's you know, broken like me? Do you, do you think sometimes there's this worth issue whereby they will chase someone that is running away or that is maybe unwell because... Well, they're just like me, and I don't really deserve someone who's got their shit together. Well, put it this way. You see, once you're sober as an addict alcoholic, and you know how to communicate who you are, that's very attractive to a woman. I mean, it's the reformed bad boy. And I give my clients self-esteem by telling them how reformed and how great they are because they've been able to make the transition. Right there mm. is a very attractive person because they're able to really talk about who they are in an authentic way. I mean, women love that, you know? I mean, men, I think, have a harder time with that with a woman because men, I think, more shut down, mm. okay? They're not as open as women are. But I, I do think that, you know, it is, it is such a great thing to be a recovering man or a woman because they have the insights and they have the knowledge. It's like they have a third sight. And I really mean that. Mm. I think we have a third sight, that we are so special, we are so intuitive, and we're so sensitive mm. as people. We're now able to actually use it as power. As a superpower. Yeah, because we are very powerful people. Yeah. You know, once we get out of our own fucking way, we're really powerful people. And that's the gift of addiction. Yes. Yeah. And that's the gift that you have, mm. that I have, that many addicts, alcoholics have. They just have to get out of their own fear and insecurity way to be authentic and not be afraid. You know? And, you know, and even today, I mean, you know, I'm divorced, okay? And uh, married 17 years, okay? Wow. When you were sober? Yeah, now. Once sober? Yeah. Oh, now. Now. Second marriage, 17 no, years. No, first marriage. Oh, you know now. I got married in right. sobriety. Okay. Right? Um, she was also an addict. Okay. Okay, both sober. Uh, I was 10 years. She was like 10 months, right? And uh, we fell in love. And uh, we went to a lot of therapy to work on our intimacy because there was definitely issues. Yeah. Okay. And for both of us. And, you know, and the key, the reason it lasted 17 years was because we loved each other and we did the work mm. and we did not leave. You see, that's available. Mm. None of us left for 17 years. No, and that's a good point. People who are available aren't looking for the back door. That's right. Yeah. And see, that right, because I'll Fuck, say, and now I just, oh man, you just dropped something to me. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say this, that... When I have a client that comes in and says that their partner won't come in, 
and won't, and because and, I'll say this to them, because they're, oh, I love that. I said, but they're not here. They're not sitting here. That means they're not available. If they were sitting here willing to listen to you and do the work, then they're available. So what are you talking about? And for 17 years, she and I showed up. Now we have three kids. But about three years ago, I realized I wasn't in love anymore. Now, I wish I was in love, but I, I, I can't change that. To thy own self be true. Was that perhaps old fear of intimacy issues coming up? I don't know. Or was it just a, a spiritual shift? Yeah, I think it was a spiritual shift. Right. You know? Was it be- mutual? No. That was oh, the problem. Wow. That was the problem. And the more you withdrew, the more. Yeah. Is there still an element of codependence within the relationship? Yes. And that's why I stuck it out for a few years. Right. Okay. Because I didn't want to deal with that truth. Right. I didn't want to have to end it because it would have been too painful for my kids, for her. So I I tried to live a lie. Okay. But then got to a point where I said, what am I doing? You see, that's why in recovery, to thy own self be true, that's a hardcore thing. Mm. Right, to your, you know, having to deal with your own truth can be very, very difficult, and the consequences to that, you know. So I ended the marriage, and you know, and went through two years of hell, because you know she was angry, my kids were angry, and you know, and I went to therapy, and I I had to work with that, you know, and I felt guilty, but I don't have regrets because it was my truth. Mm. Now. She's got a boyfriend now. Thank God. You know, and so that relieved it. And, you know, and, you know, I'm with my kids today. You know, I got to pick them up. In fact, I'm, I, I just got a puppy. They don't know about it, right? They're going to love it, right? And, um, but that's life. And see, that's what's important for people to hear is sobriety we have an opportunity to live life on life's terms. You know, and this is life on life's terms. And that's what people have to realize. Just because we're sober doesn't mean we're walking the yellow brick road mm. and it's rainbows. No. It means we you're get, more likely doing more work. Yeah, because we, we have to show up. But see, the self-esteem as men and as women, we, we face that head on. And by being able to walk through it, is being a man or being a woman. You see, we're not little boys and girls anymore. And that makes me feel really good, Mm. that I'm not a boy anymore. I'm a man that has to take responsibility and show up and make amends where I need to make amends and work on myself where I need to work on myself, you know, and, and live life. And, you know, it's interesting in that I don't need to bring somebody in anymore because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm have to compromise myself, you know? Um, Do you mean that from an intimate perspective? Yes. It's almost like, you know, I don't have to, you know, compromise myself emotionally. I'm fine being alone. But that's an interesting underlying belief there. What is the belief that believes letting someone in would compromise yourself? No, when, when I say that, 
I'm not bringing somebody in. I'm not bringing a lower companion in right. just so I'm not lonely. Gotcha. Do, do you yep. see what I, I mean? Yep. And, you know, and a lot of addicts, alcoholics do that. Mm. Or they stay in relationships. Like I could still be married today, but I'd be living a lie. Mm. And a lot of people stay in very unhappy relationships, you know, because they're too scared to leave, which I don't blame them. Because it's hard to leave. I've kind of gone the opposite. Like when I came out of my marriage <clears throat> two and a half years ago, and I finally, and I'd always, I'd identified as an addict for over a decade at that point, but I'd never identified as a codependent. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I came out of the marriage that I was like, oh, okay, wow, there's this other side of me that I wasn't, this is that other label. There was this new, there was this new diagnosis. And then I was like, okay, so if I'm codependent, I'm gonna treat this like uh, a drug therapy. I'm gonna go, I'm going to go abstinent. I'm going to go sober. Right, right. And so I've, I found myself literally not wanting to get into a relationship mm-hmm. for the last two and a half years, but I'm now finding myself like you. I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of getting used to this, mm-hmm. uh, like being alone business. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I don't have to compromise in any scenario of my yeah. life, but I also feel like I'm missing out. Well, exactly. And, and see, that's where the personal struggle is now, mm. is that I don't want to isolate myself too much. I need to get out there. And I need to work on intimacy, right? But I'm not just going to jump into something yes. that, out of my own codependency. I, 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 that, that I can relate to. Do, do, yeah. do you see what I mean? Because I have gone out there, I have, but I'm just not jumping in just for the sake of it. Right, yeah. exactly. Because you see, we are codependent, mm. we're caretakers, mm. okay? And it's great to be a caretaker, but it has its down moments where I'll compromise myself and bring in unhealthy people. Yeah. You know, because that's what I did. everybody. That's what I did when I was seven years. I was so codependent, I wanted to save that woman because I didn't want to deal with my own shit, Mm. you know. But because I did that, it set me up for an amazing path because I did the work. Mm. That's why if you do the work and don't run from it, life is going to take you places that are gonna be, will blow your mind. I mean, for me to be sitting here as a therapist and you know fairly successful and love what I do, if you would have told me this at 25 years old, I would have laughed at you. Laughed my ass off at you. <laughs> Doing lines with the New York City cops. <laughs> 25 years from now, you're gonna be a drug therapy counselor, you're gonna build successful treatment centers. Yeah, wow. You know? Yeah. I mean, just unbelievable where life mm. takes you. If you're authentic and to thy own self be true. Mm. I just want to make sure I bookend the, the thing you said about abandonment because I really liked it. The first thing you said is, look, you've got to get out there and start dating. Yes. The second thing is don't chase. The third thing is you're going to find yourself, you know, uh, a healthy person who you may not be necessarily attracted to. Right. But you know there's a healthy relationship there. Yes. Learn to sit with that. Bingo. Right. Bingo. Is there another step or is that, that's, because that to me is like, wow, that's actually really practical. Yes. Well, you got to take those feelings to therapy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You got to take the fear and the uncomfortableness to therapy and talk about where that's coming from and why is that coming up. And you'll find that's coming up because of our past Mm. and of our, how we were raised. Okay. And who are, role models were Mm. because 
unfortunately, addicts, alcoholics don't really have healthy parental role models. Mm. I mean, we just don't. I mean, you know, through reality, my parents probably should never have had kids. Mm. You know, but they didn't know. You know, it's interesting. I can, I can relate to that in some degrees where I think all parents do the best that they could and can with the skills that they've got. But I can look at all the benefits and the deficits I had in my own parenting, even though my parents split when I was six months, brought up by my mum. But it's interesting on reflection now, I look at my upbringing has actually created me to be the father that I am today, even though yeah. I didn't have the, the necessarily the exact role models that I wanted because the deficits created the desire to create. Exactly. And fill the void for, for that next... Um, exactly. Yeah, that next exactly. generation. Exactly. And see, that's where we can, you know, change the patterns that we grew up with, you Gar- know, for our children. Yeah. Gabor Mate has a really interesting, you know, model of addiction. When he looks at, he looks a lot at, you know, at trauma uh, and stress in early childhood. Are you, are you familiar with, you know, his, his model of addiction? I'm, like, obviously, you, you've, you've come at it so far from the genetic perspective, mm-hmm. where 90% of addicts, you know, they have a, a, mm-hmm. a genetic predisposition to addiction mm-hmm. based on a, um, you know, a, another family member, you know, being mm-hmm. affected. Um, his model of addiction looks at trauma. His model of addiction looks at pain and, and stress and how, you know, children during their formative years are essentially exposed to levels of stress whereby there's not a role model in place that is demonstrating how to regulate that level mm-hmm. of stress. And so mm-hmm. as a result, the brain maladapts, mm-hmm. you know, it changes the, the dopamine receptor profile of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, you know, it, the brain becomes maladaptive, increases the incidence of things like ADHD, which then makes us in some, in which he believes also, and also others, that is also predisposes us to being um, more likely to be an addict mm-hmm. once experienced. So I'm curious to see. I understand your genetic point of view. What's your feelings on the on the stress, on the pain, on the trauma side? Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, I I agree with that. Okay, but I don't. But I think it's it's not. I think he, he goes too much with that. Doesn't understand. Like, in my own practical experience, I'll deal with people that were never molested, or no, I'll deal with people that were molested, uh, beaten, and were not addicts. I'll deal with people that were never molested, never beaten like myself, and became addicts. Okay, so that's one. Two, I do believe that trauma is very prone to addiction. Absolutely, okay? But the genetic is there. Mm. You got the card. Because, and the reason I say this is, in the treatment field, in the last number of years, there's been this whole deal with trauma, okay? These treatment centers will, you know, market, you know, will deal with your trauma. I, I think that's bullshit. Because let, let me lay it out to you is you don't deal with, you deal with a little trauma if it comes up in the first 90 days. But if you don't teach those, these people how to be sober, if you don't teach them how to go to recovery, how to go to 12 steps, how to be able to continue your recovery, right? And have a solid foundation in recovery that when the trauma comes up, you better fucking know where to go to keep yeah. your recovery. Mm. Because what these treatment centers don't seem to understand is that the first thing is your recovery. 
you got to have the strength and the foundation to deal. to deal with the trauma when it comes up. Yeah. That's I so mean, true. if I didn't have the support at seven years sober, when I went through my trauma with this girl, right, that brought up all these issues, I would never have gotten through to it. Mm. Never. And, and trauma doesn't come up. A lot of it is buried deep. You don't want to like bring all that trauma up in the first 30 or 60 or 90 days and expose it when they don't even have a foundation in recovery. Where are they going to go with all that when they leave the treatment center? They're leaving the treatment center at the end of 30 or 40 days. Mm. And now they're going to go out in the world and deal with all the stuff you just brought up? Please. you got to allow the trauma to come up naturally. Okay? You can't just bring it up and push to bring it up mm. you're you're exposing them to a vulnerability that they're not used to dealing with yet does this make sense total sense you know yeah. and that's the thing I, I that makes me so angry about these treatment centers because then secondly they give the the idea that if you solve your <coughs> trauma you'll stay sober bullshit <laughs> it's a lie Absolute lie. You're not going to stay sober if you don't have a foundation in recovery. We're addicts. We have a behavior. We love to get loaded. We love it. We love to check out. I mean, I would give anything to do a little dope today. Come on, just to re get rid of that free-floating anxiety I have. I'm 35 years sober, and I still feel that way. Now, if I wasn't in recovery and involved in recovery and work in recovery, well, who knows where I would be today mm -hmm. with that little demon in my head. That little beast. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that a lot of these treatment centers are doing it because we solve your trauma, you're fixed. Bullshit. I'm not fixed. The day I know I'm fixed is the day I know that I'm going to die that day. In a bed, sober. Then I'll know I made it. How important is connection when it comes to being sober? And the reason I ask is um, Rat Park, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with the model of Rat Park, I found absolutely fascinating. When you isolate a rat and you give them the opportunity to have cocaine and heroin and they're in isolation, they will dope themselves to death. <laughs> <clears throat> but when you put you know, a, a group of rats in, you know, in a, in, in a little set, in a little, you know, rat box together or a park together where there's little wheels and mm -hmm. spinning wheels and they can socialize. And the rats, in most cases, in like 90% of situations, they'll completely ignore the, mm -hmm. the, the heroin and the cocaine. Mm -hmm. And that to me, like, it was such a small metaphor, mm -hmm. but it was like, oh my God, that's mm -hmm. profound. Because mm -hmm. as an addict, I isolate a lot. Mm -hmm. um, What's your view on the importance of connection as a part of the recovery process or even as a part of not so much even the recovery but even the prevention side of getting there in the first Con side? Connection is what it's all about. Mm. Uh, that's why I go to meetings is to connect. Community. Community. If, if I didn't have a community to go to, and let me tell you, I'm so blessed to have a community to go to, to feel a part of, to feel connected to feel that I belong to something that is a movement, a movement. Recovery to me is a movement, okay? It's a social movement. 
I wouldn't be here today sober, okay? Everything depends upon my connection to people. Is that I spent most of my life addicted, and that's the thing I was connected to. Hmm. That was my best friend. I move that out, I bring people in. That's the new drug of choice. Has to be. The smile on your face when you motioned that was, was quite beautiful. Um, we're hearing now a lot about a third wave um, in the psychedelic movement, uh, using psychedelic therapy as a treatment for you know, everything, a whole range of different addictions and, and, and even alcoholism. I think Saskatchewan is the only place right now where it's still legal to use LSD for the treatment of alcoholism. You look at the origins of Alcoholics Anonymous and what was the gentleman's name who wrote the book? You know, there's, there's, there's many conversations and stories that I've heard and read about he, how he was, you know, LSD therapy was actually a part of his treatment in the early days of AA. LSD therapy was actually something that they promoted and it became like a little bit, oof, that's not going to work well politically. Let's kind of remove this. Right, right. Um, but now, you know, we're hearing about, you know, uh, people, you know, going to South America and using ayahuasca, uh-huh. you know, um, Ibogaine. And even in some respects, people, you know, finding their own little voodoo mm-hmm. gurus who are doing mm-hmm. psilocybin, LSD, and mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. Farmawaska mm-hmm. um, tri- treatments. Mm-hmm. It is new. It is, in some respects, considered to be, by some people, a little mm-hmm. bit radical, treating mm-hmm. a drug addiction with a drug. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be having some effect. I'm curious as to your, your opinion, your experience, where you think um, it's going. I, I think it's a joke. <laughs> and I'll tell you why is the addict loves to check out, loves it. We will come up with any reason to check out, okay? And once the addict gets a little exposure to the ability to check out, it will continue. It will open up that door. Just like for me, having a beer when I got out of my first dreamer program. It was a little bridge to slowly rationalize other little ways to check out, Mm. okay? I really believe that to do the work, it has to be natural. Not by using some foreign substance to bring things up. It's got to be a natural progression because that's the way we were born. That's, you know, we, we, we don't, our feelings are authentic. And I think the more natural it is, and this is my own experience, you know, personal experience and the experience of working with others, that the addict also, if they're sober and then they go use a drug, the beast becomes alive. Well, I did it once. They'll feel a little guilty. They'll feel like, God, should I have done that? Right? And then they'll rationalize other little steps on the way. It's an extremely dangerous slope. And, you know, that's why it can be no gray areas for the addict alcoholic if you want to have long-term sobriety. That is, that is an extremely gray to dark area. Mm. You know, why take the risk? I mean, I don't drink. I never was an alcoholic. Why don't I have a beer? Because why am I going to flip a coin on my life? 
So you've seen no compelling research in any of the or evidence in any of the research that's come out? I, I've never because I've done ayahuasca twice. I can tell you right now, yeah. it is not a recreational drug. It's not no, something and, you do and, for fun. And, and, and I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Okay, but it's not something that I would. Oh do. no, 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 or, no. Or, 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 or recommend. And, yeah. And to be honest with you, I haven't really looked at the research now. Okay. Uh, ketamine, right? Mm-hmm. I have clients that do that. Okay. Uh, for serious depression. Now that's a new one. Okay, um, and I've had to recommend that for people that have tried all medications and it doesn't work. I have a client now that you know is on it, and she's actually doing better. Mm. You know? I've heard similar stories with um, uh, treatment-resistant depression and microdosing of LSD and psilocybin as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe I'm just not that new age. Oh, I disagree. <laughs> Maybe look, I I'm just old school. The, <laughs> ah, look, I think everyone has the right to their own perspective and opinion, yeah, and that's yeah. what makes us human. Yeah, exactly. But I'm just a curious cat. Yeah. I'm a very curious cat. Why, why do you think most forms of treatment are so, so ineffective? Um, because I don't think the individual is ready yet. Okay. Um, they haven't hit a bottom yet. They haven't had the psychic shift. I think a lot of people go into treatment because they're forced into treatment. Mm. Now, in my case, I was forced into treatment. But would it have worked if my father didn't die? I don't know. Mm. Okay. But it was, you know, the perfect storm. I'm blessed. I mean, I hate to have my father died for my own selfish reasons. But, you know, that, that actually worked. You know, I mean, horrific events to individuals is what creates the psychic shift. Horrific, horrific, painful events, you know, due to their using or life experience will create the psychic shift. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's why a lot of treatment doesn't work because they're being forced in. Now, you hope it works. I mean, I, I don't give up on anybody. You know, and I deal with a lot of hardcore addicts, alcoholics. I don't give up on anybody because I always think there's hope for somebody. Maybe because of what I've gone through and I've seen what other people have gone through. Plus, if I didn't have hope for everyone, then why would I do what I do? You know, because I'm motivated. Hope Mm -hmm. motivates me. But, you know, I also think a lot of treatment centers these days, the treatment world has gotten really bad. Really bad. Okay. They're over commercialized. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it becomes it's they're like therapy clinics. It's not treatment. It's not helping them handle a no. See, the addict can't handle a no. I'm an arrogant, entitled brat. Okay, I needed I needed structure, and I needed to be able to handle when somebody told me no, so I could handle it emotionally. Mm. You see, addicts they're told no, they have temper tantrums. They have fits. They scream and yell. That's what makes the addict alcoholic vulnerable. That's why they can't make it out in the real world Mm. because they can't handle a no. And treatment centers are really there to teach the person how to be strong, how to handle a no, and handle life. Mm. And see, treatment centers aren't doing that anymore. In fact, the client runs the treatment center. Wow. If a client's running the treatment center, then they're not doing the work. Because they're doing it their way. Mm. And it's their way that got them locked up in the treatment center. 
See, that's what's the craziness. And because the treatment center wants to make money, they'll compromise the treatment. So it's gotten bad. We've seen a massive shift in the landscape in the U.S. with the legalization of cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to see the rest of the world take notice and, and, and adopt and change their laws from a medical perspective. Mm-hmm. We've seen incredible stuff in Portugal as mm-hmm. well with decriminalization. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious to know from your perspective, you know, as someone who identifies as a cannabis addict, mm-hmm. and I should probably contextualize the, the statement I said earlier. I said I found it more difficult to get off cannabis than mm-hmm. I did off speed. And I should say what I meant by that is once I got free and clear from amphetamines, I, 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 I just could never see myself going back. Mm-hmm. But cannabis was always one of those soft drugs. It was yeah. like, it's just cannabis. Yeah. It's natural. Yeah, What's exactly. the harm? I've quit 20 times. I know I can quit again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people will say it's a non-addictive drug. Now, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for cannabis, but I'm a, I'm a conscious advocate for cannabis mm-hmm. where I say it, I believe it has incredible medical benefit, mm-hmm. but it also needs to be treated as a, as a drug. It needs mm-hmm. to be treated as a drug that has addictive potentials mm-hmm. that can be destructive as well. Mm-hmm. And I think there needs to be a balanced opinion mm-hmm. out there, I agree. which I think is, is very much lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious from your perspective, from a treatment perspective, have you seen with the, the, the increase in availability of cannabis um, an escalation or even maybe a skyrocketing in the the number of um, treatments that are required for people who have cannabis addictions? Well, um, there's definitely, I mean, I've definitely treated a lot of cannabis addicts, okay? Um, I'm against the legalization of cannabis. Uh, I've been on a, a board um, with Patrick Kennedy uh, where we have fought the legalization in the States, right? We've lost, okay? especially here in California. And I'll tell you why I'm against it. First of all, I don't believe people should ever go to prison for any drug. Let me state that. They need to get help. Now, with cannabis, if you make it legal, you you let everyone know that it's safe. That's what you're saying. Because it's legal, so it's safe. Now, a lot of people in this country... If it was illegal, a lot of people actually are law-abiding citizens. But if it's not legal, they're not going to touch it. But the minute you've opened it up the Pandora's box that it's legal and it's being mass-produced and mass-promoted, you are now creating more addiction. Because 15 to 20% of people that do smoke cannabis get addicted. Okay? Just like you were addicted, I was addicted. Now, I went to harder drugs and gave up cannabis because I like fucking harder drugs better. But I've seen so many people in this town smoke weed every day. And the weed that they're smoking, the THC levels are huge. Mm. Not when I was smoking weed. Two to three times stronger. They are so out of it. And that is what's happening. Now, I really do believe that the addiction rates are going to get bigger. And it's like my sister that I told you about. You're not going to see dysfunction right away. Wait. Cannabis is a slow burn. Yes. It's a real slow burn. And you smoke it every day, especially with the the THC levels, right? Uh, It's going to get worse and worse. It's just another going to be a social problem. Okay, where we could have just made it a speeding ticket, okay? And like you get a certain amount of speeding tickets, you know, like if you get a certain amount of tickets and you're caught with cannabis or a certain amount, well, then you got to go to counseling. 
you know, to work on the issue, okay? But it's free-floating. So I don't see what good it is. Now, medical marijuana is another story. It's totally separate. Totally different, yeah. Totally separate from what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay? And it's so interesting is that the advocates always talk about the medical part, but that's just their manipulation, okay? Because it's a very small part of the population that needs it medically, okay? Compared to everybody just wants to get high. I mean, what happened to getting high on life? And I mean that. Mm. That's the social problem. There is no let's get high on life. It's always got to let me smoke a weed, let me have a drink. I mean, it, it, it is a, a, a mentality that you can't have fun or live life unless you're high on something. What the fuck? You don't mind if I swear to you. No, fuck no. No, we, uh, we say okay, the F word and, and drives. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you understand what I mean? There, I do. It, it, it is a... Uh, our priorities are totally backwards, especially when we have such a crisis. I mean, a crisis in this country. And we're just adding more to the crisis. That's how crazy it is. But, you know, I'm just one guy with an opinion, that's all. <laughs> so what's next for you? Because I know you built your own treatment center. And you sold that? Yeah, I sold the treatment yeah. center. And, um, you know, I'm consulting with other treatment centers. I just got back from New York consulting with another place that wants to open. I had a talk in front of the community board, you know, who are up in arms about addicts, the danger, you know, our kids, oh the neighborhood. I mean, what is wrong with normal people that look at us like we're some sort of you know, mental cases they're going to rob and rape their children. I mean, seriously. I mean, that's the, the, that's the community board I just came from. Wow. In New York, you know? That's why it's so important that you do what you do and what I do to educate, okay, that we're not dangerous people. Yeah, we used to be bad crazy. Well, guess what? Now we're good crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we're good crazy. We're fucking good crazy. Right? And that's great. That's exciting. I mean, that's what we want to be. That's what we want the country to be. It's the best kind of crazy. Yes. You know? And 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 that's the message. Bad crazy, no more. Now it's all about being good crazy. So as a final thought, what do you believe is, and I guess this will be hard to define because it might be very individual but what was the greatest gift of addiction for you? God, I, I think the greatest gift of addiction for me is it gave me a purpose. Mm. It gave me passion for life. It gave me a purpose of life. It gave me a passion for life. Uh, it has meant my whole life. If you could take your addiction out of your timeline and go back and not experience addiction, would you? No way. I love everything that I've gone through. All the pain, all the insanity, all the arrests, because that's who I am today. Mm. Okay, and I love that about myself. I'm a survivor. If you don't, if if you don't have a hard life, you don't have a life, mm. because the hard life has helped you become a beautiful life. 
Dr. Howard Samuels, thank you so much for being unstoppable. Absolute honor and a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I that was it. fucking epic. <laughs> <laughs> this I episode like- was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, KerwinRay.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.